following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light across in our city and world through the transformed lives of its people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the passage that our that our beautiful kids read, and that and and that I mean I guess I can call him beautiful too, but but that would be weird. But but that our executive pastor also read. All right, the passage is Luke two, and and, and it's working through a number of different verses. I want to focus in on the particular verses in which um, Luke is describing to us the journey of the shepherds. Okay, he's describing to us the journey of the shepherds. Now Luke is a a a, a character in the Bible, he is a friend of Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, hung out from, from, from our understanding, looking at some of, the, uh, some of the theology or some of the history of the day. It's been, it's been said that Luke hung out with Paul, and Luke's, uh, Luke's gospel, his good news, his, his biography of Jesus, if you will, it is based or it is presented primarily to Gentiles, all right? It's presented primarily to unbelievers, people, people who want to know what is it about this Savior that gets everyone so spun up? What is it about this Jesus that gets so, everyone so spun up? And so Luke doesn't really spend a whole lot of time like Matthew working through Jesus' genealogy and unpacking the fact that he came from the son of David and that the fact that he, he was the son of David, he was the son of Abraham, and that here's all of his Jewish lineage. Luke actually jumps right in to, the, uh, to, to the, his biography by discussing Jesus' birth. And this passage is a passage about vantage points, right? So, like, so one of the things in a good story and a good narrative is that you always have eyewitnesses that can give you a little piece of the story that maybe other eyewitnesses could not. Does that make sense? And so there, and so there's a there's an eyewitness for the the uh, for the magi that come uh, come from the east, and it's not three of them, by the way. Who knows how many? But the Bible never says. But 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 they come from the east to see this this one who was called Jesus Christ, and 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 they have a vantage point. Okay, Mary and Joseph have a vantage point, and, and their vantage point is as parents that have come to 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 to, to parent this child that is that begins growing in Mary's womb and eventually is birthed and is birthed and laid in a what appears to be a horse trough and, and and we don't know if it was a barn there's actually no text that speaks to the fact there was a barn more than likely actually it probably wasn't even an inn that it's actually in the greek just says a place to stay all right and so the ideal is many theologians surmise that what actually is happening here is that joseph's family is gathered and that there is no room in the usual place in which they would stay and so on the outskirts of joseph's joseph's home there's an opportunity for mary to actually birth this child and that is possibly where they are in this area in this horse trough otherwise known as a manger a savior is born. But not only is that a perspective, but there's also a perspective from the shepherds. They're, they too have a perspective, and, 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 and their perspective is really unique for a lot of different reasons. One reason is that the, 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 there's, the, there's theologians, one by the name of who actually wrote a book called um, Palestine or Jerusalem, rather, in Jesus' time. And he wrote it literally 30 years ago. And his name is Jaquim Jeremiah, 
And in this book written by Joachim Jeremiah, he says that in the first century Jews is not what we consider, or rather the first century Jews, the way they saw shepherds, is not the way we see shepherds in the 20th century. As a matter of fact, he goes on to write that most of the time when they thought about shepherds, they thought about dishonest people and thieving people. They led their herds onto other people's land and pilfered the produce of the land. It's one of the reasons that, Jer- uh, that, that, that Joachim Jeremiah says that Jesus spends, spends the time saying, listen, I am the good shepherd because shepherds had such a bad, bad stereotype back then. In addition, because they were often months at a time without supervision talking about shepherds, they were often accused of stealing some of the increase of the flock. And Jeremiah continues by describing these shepherds saying, consequently, the pious were warned not to buy wool, not to buy milk, not to buy any of the kids or the produce from the shepherds on the assumption that it was stolen property and shepherds were not allowed to fulfill a judicial office or be admitted in court as witnesses. It is to people who generally fit these types of negative stereotypes that God gives the witness of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? It's people that, that in the first century, they say, could not be trusted that God says, these are the people that are going to bear witness to my son. That's amazing, right? These shepherds under normal circumstances would not even be allowed to testify if someone's life was in the balance. But this is the God who calls upon the, un, the, the unqualified, so to speak, and the stereotypical liars, so to speak, to be witnesses of his son's birth. Now, of course, we're not saying these shepherds were liars. We're talking about the stereotype aligned with shepherds. So first thing we need to take into consideration with this bit of knowledge is the implications for the truth of the gospel story. Just thinking about that one thing. If people are making stories up about Jesus, then one of the things you don't do if you're making up a story is you take the least credible stereotype and characterize that person as being the one that testifies about Jesus, right? Does that make sense? I mean, if you're going to make up a story about Jesus, then you're going to find the most credible people in your particular culture, in your particular society, and say, yeah, let's put them in the story, and let's let them visit Jesus, and let's talk about their witness to Jesus. So you don't make up stories and put bad, bad characters in them to support your story which is part of the reason why we know the story isn't made up. But one of the things that we can be encouraged by, and not just think about it from an apologetic or a defense, defending our faith, but one of the things we can simply be encouraged by is this, is that this is God's M.O. when you look throughout all of the Bible, to give the witness of the most spectacular things to the most unlikeliest of people. To give witness to the most spectacular things or to give the witness to the most spectacular things to the most unlikeliest of people. So if you're in here this morning saying to yourself, my dirt sheet, my rap sheet here, preacher, is way too long to be used by God, to be considered eligible for use by God. I got too much dirt in my past. Think of the shepherds here. God makes credible the non-credible. He qualifies the unqualified. He calls those least heard of. And he equips those most ill-equipped. God does the work, not you. So what does God prepare the shepherds to do? He prepares them to testify to the birth of the Savior of the world. 
And in what way is this testimony established? And that's where we find ourselves. In verse 8, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. God brings the angels to deliver his message concerning his son. And the angels are spectacular in their makeup, right? Matter of fact, angels themselves are often mistaken for gods in the text. They are spectacular beings. They cause men to tremble in fear at their very sight. Luke writes of God's glory literally illuminating the angel that is gathered in the midst of these shepherds. The immediate response that the shepherds have is one of terror, one of dread, and one of fear, great fear, the text says. Immediately, this, this type of engagement, this type of interaction should help us understand two things very, very, very quickly. And one thing is this, is that we are very small. We are extremely small. Have you ever rode a roller coaster that didn't scare you until you got to that first major drop and you're like, what in the world am I doing on this thing? Right? I remember, I remember being on a roller coaster with my father. My father and I, I, I grew up a, a, a coaster kid, right? My father would take us to amusement parks. He would jump on any coaster that you could name. And there was one particular time as he was getting older, he was telling me, son, I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. You know, and I'm like, come on, man, one more. And so we got, on, we got on a roller coaster, and this just so happened to be the biggest roller coaster at the park, right? And so we're going up, and, and me and my dad, we're doing our usual thing, which is kind of like cheering and celebrating and, and kind of dancing. You know, we're like, ooh, 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 right? You know, we, we got a dance going. We're doing all kinds of stuff because this is just what we do when we get on roller coasters. And so we're like, yeah, yeah. And then we get to the top of the hill and all of a sudden my dad goes silent. And I'm still saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I look over my dad. He's like this. Like, what happened to this guy? But one of the things that happens as you get older, you, 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 you become more sensitive to the, to the fragility of your life. You become more sensitive to the mortality that is within you, you realize that, hey, I could die on this thing. My dad understood that. It is in those moments where the situation or the environment reminds you of how feeble you really are. Fear creeps in as a mechanism to bring awareness to your feebleness. These shepherds at the sight of these angels recognize how small they are, how mortal they are. Their significance is immediately challenged in this moment. But there's another thing they realize probably in this text, or it should be something that we realize as we read this text, is that one, we're really, really, really small, but two, God is enormously huge. He is really, really, really big. You say, well, well why do you say that? Well, because as, as they are in this moment with these beings, they are literally paralyzed with fear and with dread but, but these beings serve another. These beings serve God. They're, they're not actually here to do anything apart from what he has instructed of them to do. They're here on his command. They're here to deliver his message. And so if these beings strike fear and dread in a soul, how much more so should a God of the universe that controls them and commands them and sends them on mission. How terrifying, how, how awesome must the one whose glory shines around them be? 
The perfect place to receive the good news of Jesus Christ is here, right there, in that posture of smallness, in the reality that I am not nearly as significant as I think I am. You say, that sounds harsh, but, but you need to receive it there, and you'll see why. This posture of humility, this posture that reminds you that God is way bigger than I am. That, that his glory is capable of destroying us in a blink and that, and that we are small, way smaller than we would like to think. Way smaller than our society would have us to believe. Because see, here in this posture, the next words that are spoken to the shepherds become all the more sweeter. You understand that? And what are those next words? Verse 10 says, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, a multitude of angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the words... Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Become sweeter. Become sweeter. Become sweeter in the atmosphere of our smallness. Fear not, though you are small and he is big, fear not because the news isn't bad that I came to bring you. The news is good. Fear not, though he is exceedingly perfect and you are overwhelmingly, we are overwhelmingly imperfect because the news isn't that he has come to bring you grief, but rather he has come to bring you great joy. Fear not, though you are mortal and as fragile as the sheep that you are watching over because the news isn't that God has come to destroy you, but rather that God has come to send you a savior. Fear not, for I bring you good news, or great good news of great joy. What does the good news consist of? It consists of great joy. Now, this joy is based in God's love. This joy is not based on conditions. This joy is established in eternal hope. We know this based on how the New Testament uses the term joy. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter, uh, the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, um, he is later writing, later on in his life, he is writing to the church. And when he writes to the church, he says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be scared, of the, don't be surprised, don't be shocked when trials of suffering come. That's what Peter says. That's not what America says, but that's what Peter says, right? But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Did you hear that? Rejoice. The same word that's used for joy in Luke 2, Peter now uses in the context of suffering. And he says, rejoice when you suffer. I bring you good news of great joy in the midst of suffering? How so? This great joy is not predicated on current conditions, but on permanent ones. No matter what your life looks like right now, no matter what your lot in life is right now, no matter what your current situation is right now, this joy is not predicated on temporal conditions. This joy is predicated on permanent conditions. 
This great joy, this great joy. So, so maybe you're in a favorable position right now. No, maybe you're living in a pretty house, you're driving a pretty sweet ride, you, you have a beautiful woman or a handsome man on your side, and they're killing it too. They got great jobs, great houses, big money, but without Christ your Savior, you still have to face a great and mighty God with your small, feeble, imperfect, eternal resume that's littered with violations of his holy law. So whatever your joy, whatever joy your favorable circumstances are, are producing for you right now, it is a small and temporal joy. You understand that? But on the flip side, maybe your current situation isn't favorable at all right now. Maybe you're coming out of a relationship that has left you deeply wounded. Maybe you're, maybe you're struggling uh, overwhelmingly with finances and money and bills are piling to the ceiling, it seems like. Maybe your children are a complete and total mess right now. You don't know what to do with them. You've thrown your arms in the air and said, Lord, I, can't, I don't know what to do. Maybe your health is as bad as it's ever been in your entire life right now. Maybe your life is a complete and total train wreck right now. But with Christ as your Savior and Lord, it is only temporary. God's joy is great, not because your current conditions are, but God's joy is great because of your permanent conditions are great. Does that make sense? This good news of great joy endures through the highs and the lows of this life because this good news of great joy extends beyond this life. Dr. Lloyd-Jones says that we shouldn't take our definition of joy from Webster. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a, was a great pastor who passed, but a great pastor a, 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 a long time ago. He wrote, he wrote and he preached with just such fervor and such fire, but he talks about the fact that you can't define joy from a regular old dictionary definition. New Testament joy isn't like that. He says you must go to the New Testament to find what joy looks like. He says it's quite peculiar. It can't be explained. It is a quality which belongs to the Christian life only. And in that definition of joy, we must be very careful that it conforms to what we see in our Lord. And what he means by that is that the Lord God Almighty walked this earth, called a man of sorrows, and yet was exceedingly joyful. How is that possible? Because he always looked beyond the grave. He always looked beyond the circumstance. He always looked beyond the moment, the current moment, and saw the eternal rewards that laid on the other side. Does that make sense? He saw what was being accomplished. And so because of that, he still walked, even in grief and suffering, he still walked in exceedingly joyful. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that there is only one thing that can give true joy, and that is contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies the mind. He satisfies the emotions. He satisfies every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. Who is this good news for is reserved for all people. Every single soul it's reserved for. If your good news of great joy, if the good news of great joy that you share or that you've heard before today can only be appropriated to a certain race, a certain class, a certain political party, or a certain culture of people, then that is not the good news that you preach and that you share and that you have heard. 
Rich people, poor people, black people, white people, people deemed important in this world, people deemed insignificant in this world. This gospel of great joy is reserved for all the people. And so great joy is not just set aside for, 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 for one group, but great joy is set aside for all groups. But not only is this good news that, that, that he brings, a, a good news of great joy, but it is one that brings about salvation. He says that, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You say, what do I need saving from? What do I possibly need saving from? It's okay to get confused by it. Even the, Jewish, and even the Jewish folks that were waiting on this Savior got confused by it. They thought that they needed saving from the oppressor Rome. They thought that they needed saving from the political oppression. When really it wasn't about the political oppression at all. It was about their sinful oppression. That Jesus came to save sinners is what the Bible tells us. And so his salvation is based on a salvation, a rescue mission from your own sin. From your own imperfection, from your own smallness. He came to rescue you, oddly enough, and in some ways very accurate, from you. Does that make sense? The Bible says that those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then what does that mean? It means call upon the name of the Lord in faith, trusting him and saying, listen, Lord, I am, I'm a mess without you. I'm a mess. I stumble every day and in all sorts of different ways. That there's never been a day on this earth that I've ever perfectly obeyed your law. I have not. There has never been a single day. And so, Lord, I call upon you to be the sacrifice for me. I trust, in, I trust in your work. I trust that when you died that you paid the price for me and I renounce myself as Lord and I make you Lord. He came to be a savior of our, from our sin. He came to rescue us from our sin. But it also says that he came and brought peace. The angels, they say after, as they are um, talking to the shepherds, the angels say, excuse me, in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That means two things. Number one, there's been peace that's been established because of Christ, because of this new born Savior, there's been peace that's been established between us and God. Amen? This dreadful, this holy, this fearful, this awesome God with a holy and perfect law, peace has been made between us and him because of Christ. But also not between us, just us and him, but Ephesians 2 says also between us and us. Peace between us and God, peace between man to man, woman to woman, bringing together the two, making them one flesh. Amen? Amen? This is what this represents in this room. 
The birth of the Savior is represented here, not just in the fact that we can come with our own individual salvation stories and say, yes, I have been saved by Jesus Christ and that eternity, that I have an eternity and that I have a future and that it is in heaven. And that's all a great testimony, but that is not the only testimony of Jesus' birth. The second part of Jesus' testimony, I mean, the, the second part of that testimony of Jesus' birth is found right in this room. When people, no matter what background, no matter what culture, no matter what, what age, no matter what gender, no matter what race, can come together in the same space and love themselves and love each other as they love themselves. Amen. That represents the peace that God secured through the baby called Jesus. But it says that it's a peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so real, here's, the, here's, the, here's the crazy thing about this text is that we've, we've oftentimes saw this text as a peace that can be spoken to for everyone. But the reality is, is that there's only a group of people in which this peace is long-term and enduring. And it says those with whom he is pleased. And you say, well, who is that? It's the ones who trust Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. The ones that, Jesus, that God the Father spoke of. Or, 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 the ones that, or the ones that trust the one whom God the Father spoke of and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, if we bank our lives on the one whom God is well pleased with, God the Father is well pleased with, then he too shall be pleased with us. Does that make sense? So the shepherds, they go and they tell their story and they, and they, and they declare their story to to, to Joseph and to Mary and to all those that are gathered, and, and they come back and they're so excited. And, 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 then, and then as we get to the last part of this, in verse 20 it says this, and this is where we end this morning. In verse 20 it says, The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And so we talked about these witnesses and we talked about this experience that they have hearing this good news of great joy. And we talk about the good news of great joy and what it consists of, salvation, peace, joy, enduring joy. And you say, when, when they hear that and when they go share that, how do they respond to that? How do they receive that? And the Bible says that they receive their visit with the Savior, leaving glorifying and praising God. And this begs the question for you this morning, how do you receive your visitation with the Savior? Glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and all they had seen. How do you leave when you hear God's word preached to you, announcing the arrival of the Savior to earth for the sins of men, for the salvation of man? How do you leave when you hear that message? But not only, not only when you hear it, some people say, well, I didn't see Jesus. Of course you did. You see him here right now. Does that make sense? You see him in people every day living out the gospel life. You've seen transformation after transformation after transformation. You've seen God do tremendous work in people that you thought didn't have a chance at living the life that they now live. Does that make sense? You've seen God do miraculous things in your life. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why on earth am I still here? You've had moments where you couldn't be. You've fallen asleep on the road driving one night. You've had all sorts of moments, and yet you have heard 
but you have also seen. Does that make sense? You have seen God's hand at work in your life. And so the question is, how will you respond? Will you leave glorifying and praising the God of the universe for bringing you, instead of destruction, bringing you salvation, and instead of bringing you grief, bringing you joy? How will we leave? How will we celebrate tomorrow? That's the question. How will you celebrate tomorrow? Will it be an exchange of gifts? Or maybe for the first time in your life, will it be the true and complete embracing of the gift that was given to us? Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you. We give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. We ask, Lord, that you continue to help us, God. Continue to help us make much of you. Continue to help us, Lord God. See your son in all of the splendor and all of the wonder that he should be seen in. Continue to help us by your spirit, Lord God. Live lives, Lord God, for you and pursue your, your will and not our own. Father, I pray for, for those that are gathered in this room, Lord God. If there be any in this room who do not know you, I pray, Lord God, that during this time in this moment that they would come to embrace you, Lord God, as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that on tomorrow as we celebrate and as we exchange gifts and as we eat and as we dine and fellowship together, that, Father, what would be at the center is the arrival of the one who brought us good news of great joy. These things we ask and we pray in your son Christ's name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.